Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of research Hong Kong for Julius Baer. Now, it's the beginning of the month again, and it's time for our monthly conversation with Grow. Let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China and Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for the time speaking with us today. Great to be here, Richard. Thank you. Before we start, I do want to make our audience aware that Julius Berry is hosting the Mid-Year Market Outlook Luncheon in Shanghai on June 15th. Now, both Hao and I are the speakers, and I will first present the Julius Berry views on global assets and then host a discussion with Hao on China Macro and a couple of other important topics. So if you're interested, please reach out to your relationship manager. All right, let's get straight into the conversation. May is clearly a challenging month for investments in Hong Kong, China. We've seen sharp declines in both A shares and X shares. And I think a key reason is simply that the weak economic data were released over the past few weeks. Now, whether that's the official PMI, the credit data, industrial production, fixed asset investments, or retail sales, all of them are below market expectations. You can see the organic growth momentum of the Chinese economy is still on the soft side, and this is exactly what the Politburo said in its April meeting. The good news is the year-on-year growth rates of most of these metrics will likely get stronger in the next two months, simply because of the low base effect from last year because of the Shanghai lockdown, if that matters at all. But the bad news is we may still see a slowdown in the sequential momentum. And on top of that, I think the weak property sales may also have a drag on growth. Uh, Bear in mind, the property is still a large part of the Chinese economy, especially when we consider the second-order impact. It affects the commodity demand, it affects the demand for heavy machinery, and it also has a strong wealth effect. And at the same time, the labor market is getting weaker. We've seen internet giants laying off a lot of people, and I'm sure you refer to this number a lot too, how the unemployment rate of the people in the age of 19 to 24 is now 20%, to zero. So when the labor market is that weak, income outlook that bad, it simply weighs on the consumption sentiment, as simple as that. So here I've got two questions for you, Hal. My first question is, given how weak the Chinese economy is, do you think we need some strong stimulus and do you think we will actually get it? I think eventually we will get it because the economy is now at a suboptimum level. It needs an external force, an external shock to jolt it out of the existing suboptimum spot. But I think right now, because we've done quite a bit of uh, easing in the first quarter, and also the second quarter has a very uh, low base relative to last year. So it's easy to show result in the second quarter, even without the stimulus we talked about. So I would say that we're now in a monitoring observation period. In this period, I think the central bank will try to see which part of the economy needs the most help and maybe then spend some time discuss getting approval and then eventually we should have another round of stimulus. And then the second question is regarding the property market. Now, on the policy front, I personally think that the Chinese government has done quite a lot already from street red lines to now street arrows and policies to relax purchase restrictions or mortgage requirements from different local governments, etc., etc. But to my disappointment, to a lot of people's disappointment, I still haven't seen a strong recovery in the home market yet. True, the new home sales had a strong pickup in February and March, but it turned out to be short-lived because it quickly fell back to low levels in April and May. 
I guess there may be a few reasons to explain this if you ask me. Perhaps the transmission mechanism of the three arrows is not fully functional because we can see that the private developers are still struggling with their own financing. Or it's simply a confidence issue from the home buyers that they are less constructive on the future of home prices. Basically, that's a price expectation. That's the reason why people bought homes in the past. The third reason may be simply the risk of delivery, especially when you see weakness in the primary transactions, but secondary transactions seem to be still reasonably strong. So how, let me ask you, what do you think are the key to a more sustained recovery in the property market? Or do you think that the policymakers should actually put more emphasis on the other parts of the economy instead? Yeah, I think there's a huge supply and demand imbalance right now. I think the three arrows that you mentioned is really trying to help the developers to get out of their trouble because they borrowed too much in the past five years. Some of the developers have outstanding debt amounts to two to three trillion yuan, right? So which is like a size that none of the Chinese companies have ever, ever seen in history. I think Three Arrow is trying to steady the developers and rescue them. But it's really on trying to help on the supply side. But in my opinion, the problem is that there's still way too much supply in the Chinese property market. Right? So if you help the supply side to help them recover and build more houses, then the supply side would actually increase <laughs> substantially. And at the same time, demand is so weak. And that's because Chinese household basically overextended during the pandemic. The household leverage ratio during the pandemic is up 10 percentage point in a short time span of three years. It has never happened before. And also, if you look at the household expenditure growth rate versus the income rate, right, so household expenditure is growing at a substantial faster speed than the income. And it has never happened before either. And coupled with that, you have 20% plus youth unemployment rate. I think for the university graduates this year, they're having a lot of trouble finding jobs. And just imagine, right? So every year you have around 12 to 15 million new graduates coming into the job market and accumulated for three years for the pandemic. You're talking about almost 50 million young people going around looking for jobs and of which more than 10 million are now without jobs. So that is a substantial number that we have to look into. All in all, that's the result. On one hand, we have a very weak property demand, but then on the other hand, because of the policies helping developers to help them recover, our supply is actually still very large. On top of that, you have the secondary property listing as well. Surprisingly, in many of the tier one cities, we're seeing a record secondary listing transaction. But then at the same time, even though you're seeing quite a bit of transaction in the secondary market, once those transactions were clear, you see even more listings coming on stream. That's quite shocking. So that's why we're in an unenviable spot right now. And without policy helps or without the reshaping of expectations, it's a little difficult to get out of it. I agree with you that supply side may be less a binding constraint. I think uh, the demand side is actually a binding constraint. But if you look at policies in the past, a lot of them are not demand side measures. And right now, as you mentioned, the unemployment is high. Like people feel bad about the income outlook. They feel that they don't have the money. But at the same time, there's sort of like some weird numbers flowing around that uh, deposit, basically we add 17 or 18 trillion RMB of deposits last year. So that seems to be a little bit of conflict. That's my question number one. 
Question number two is, what can you think of uh, in terms of policies to rescue the demand expectation, make sure that it doesn't fall into a vicious cycle? Because frankly, I personally can't think of one. Yeah, I think the record amount of deposit in the banking system last year, which is about 18 trillion yuan gross new deposits uh, last year, there's a mirror side of it, which is the leverage is also rising as well. And also, if you compare the rise in deposit versus the record trade surplus, so it's basically the Chinese exports are attracting foreign savings into the Chinese banking system. And that way, the Chinese deposits is rising. And then because deposit is part of the broad money supply growth, so the broad money supply is rising as well. But then at the same time, your leverage is also rising to a historical level. So I think they are like rising in tandem. In terms of stimulating the demand side, so just now we discussed the supply and demand balance in the property sector. And I think on a higher level, if you look at the Chinese economic structure, it is still a very supply side driven. So for example, the way we calculate GDP is about how much we put in to the economy rather than the value added from all these inputs. If you calculate your economic output in this way, you're bound to basically put as much stuff into this economy as possible so that you can generate, what, 5-6% growth to reach your annual target if you're a local government official so that you can ensure that your job is safe. So in this incentive system, you're bound to have a lot of waste when you invest. So then as a result, as you can see, right, so the supply side is substantially stronger than the demand side or we have an oversupply problem here, either in the property sector or in the car manufacturing sector, right? in many other sectors, there's a huge oversupply problem here. And I think that also manifests itself in the pricing pressure in the Chinese economy. Now, as you can see, with record lending, record deposits and all that, upstream is showing quite strong deflationary pressure, minus 3 to 4%. And I think downstream, you're seeing inflation actually disappear to 0%. So all this is telling you that this economy right now has a, as an oversupply problem or supply is substantially larger than demand and therefore pricing power is weak and people are not consuming. And all the weakness that we discussed in the anti-man basically lead to a problem, which is disinflation. Obviously, we're still a couple of weeks away from the inflation print for May, but the CPI inflation in April has fallen close to zero and the PPI inflation has continued to be negative. Actually, when the March numbers were released, I think investors were already talking and discussing and debating whether China may get into an outright deflation. And I'm sure you've seen it saying this again in the first quarter monetary policy report. But to be fair, if the loan growth is still maintaining at roughly a 10% rate, one would normally not expect to see deflation. But the recent data is indeed showing some pressure, either disinflation or deflation pressure. So how, how should we think about this problem? And when do you think the CPI and PPI inflation would trough? From a cycle point of view, we are at the bottom of the cycle. We need some stimulus to pull the economy out of this bottom. But I think it's very difficult to engage when the CPI will bottom because CPI tend to lag economic activities by three to six months or sometimes even longer. So if we're seeing 0% CPI now, what that means is that three months ago or in the first quarter, economic activities are actually substantially worse than expected. So it really depends on how fast we can come up with a response policy. Then after the implementation of the policy, then we still have to wait for a couple of months before the CPI will bottom out. So I would say that we are like months away from the bottom of the CPI.
So I think we still have to be patient. Well, one thing you just mentioned is that there needs to be some policies to rescue the demand and pull us out from the trough. I think in the world of economists, a lot of time we talked about MMT. And do you think we need to do this in China? It looks like the policymakers are fairly reluctant to do this. What's your view on that? I think the condition is ripe for MMT experiment. So basically, Treasury can, can issue bonds and then central bank print money to buy the bonds and then distribute the money to the industry or to a Chinese household. It's possible. But because of historical reason, if you look at the 70, 80 years ago, if you look at one of the greatest inflationary period in the Chinese history is when the nationalist government experiment MMT. Basically, that's what it is. Basically, the nationalist government print money to finance the war. And then as a result, the Chinese inflation is directly comparable to the Weimar Republic back then. I think it's like 400,000% to 500,000% per annum. So back then, the paper money that was issued by the nationalist government was called Jin Yuanjuan, uh, basically it's worth less than the paper that is printed on. So I think that's a painful history that left a sort of a trauma in the Chinese family. So and also, MMT is a Western economic theory. In the current environment, using a Western economic theory to solve Chinese problem may not be ideologically compatible. So I think that's, there are many, many reasons why we are reluctant to do this. But I, I would say that you know the conditions are here. We don't have inflationary problem. And this in New China, we've never tried this before. So for the weakness in growth, for the disinflation pressure, the Chinese rates have been quickly falling over the past month. Now, the two-year government bond is yielding only 2.1%, the 10-year at 2.7%. The direct implication of this, obviously, is RMB depreciation, especially when the US and Europe are still in their rate hike cycles. The RMB spot is already over 7 So how, at what levels do you think we may see some support, or when do we think PBOC may intervene, if at all? I think the low we saw last October was like 7.4-ish. And I wouldn't be surprised to see we get close to that kind of level once again. Having said that, though, recently, even though the Chinese yen has depreciated substantially and very fast, but I don't think that PBOC is intervening in the market. I think the PBOC is still trying to let the market set its own expectation. And then at the same time, if we have a weakened currency, it actually increased the competitiveness of Chinese exports. So then that way, just now we, we mentioned that Chinese exports has been one of the key drivers to pull Chinese economy through the three years of pandemic. And if you increase the competitiveness of the Chinese exports, it will actually help in this kind of environment. Or we can say that the weakening currency actually has a monetary loosening effect on the Chinese economy. Right, so it's helping. But then at the same time, because the Chinese assets are priced in Chinese yuan and the Chinese yuan is weakening and therefore we're seeing a weakening Chinese asset price as well and it's diverging from the Western economy's asset price. And I think it, it sort of explains everything. So I would say that currency is a mirror, it's a reflection of the economic strengths. I think after the re currency reform in 2015, the PBOC has basically led the market determine where the Chinese currency will go. And I think this time it's not different. How you just mentioned about the asset prices and we already talked about the property market. So before we close, let's just talk about the stock market. At Julius Berry, we now 
recommending two themes in the Chinese market. One is high dividend defensive stocks, and the other one is SOE reform. Now, you know policymakers invented this term, valuation system with Chinese characteristics. And in layman terms, that basically means the government wants to boost the valuation of state-owned enterprises. And one way to achieve that is through reform, to raise the operating efficiency, to improve return on equity, to raise dividend payout, etc., etc. Now, this theme of SOE reform has attracted a lot of focus from investors in recent months. I think both investors who like it and also investors who don't like it. And at Julius Bear, we're recommending this theme to our investors, largely because SOE reform is less dependent on the economic cycles. It has a high degree of certainty, which is definitely something that the market will appreciate now, especially when we have low visibility in the economy. Now, also, SOEs have absolutely low valuation levels. So on aggregate, they're still trading at less than 10 times PE. And even after 20% rally, the valuation will only be 12 times. So of course, for a stock to go up, it still goes back to having good profit growth, having good ROE, which to be frank, SOEs are lacking, or at least uh, they are trailing the private enterprises. But I guess at least tactically, SOE can deliver some decent returns just on valuation recovery. My question to you, Hao, is what do you think about the SOE? Anything else that we should pay attention to when we trade this theme? Yeah, I think it's more a, a nice story to have. After all, these guys are cheap, but they have been cheap for a long time. So there's no argument against it because they're so cheap and they have good dividend yield and therefore they look attractive, especially given the broader market is weakish. But to say that these guys, because they are SOEs, they deserve a different treatment in terms of valuation is against the principle of economics. So because we all know that the SOEs suffer a huge inefficiency. The SOEs in China, they have a social responsibility, which is to provide employment to the Chinese society. And they are quite difficult to get into, right? Because the benefits are good, the job is very stable, and there's a sort of a prestigious image attached to it. So as a result, they are difficult to get in and the structure is very bloated you know, because once you get in, basically they can't fire you. So then as a result, this so-called social responsibility actually increase uh, the operating costs for many of the SOEs. And that's why they're so bloated. But then at the same time, they provide social stability, employment and income for people. Right? So as a result, you know, as you can see, the inefficiency discount has been in their valuation for a long time. And now it is still visible so because even though after rising more than 50% in the past couple of months, they're still trading at about 10, 11 times PE, 5 to 6% dividend yield. Right? So it's still very attractive. But if you think of the SOEs in this way, if you're buying it for the steadiness, for the dividend yield and all that, it's really buying bonds because you buy bonds for the uh, interest income, the coupons, and then you buy the SOEs for the, the dividend yield. So therefore, as you can see, if you plot SOE against the 10-year Chinese treasury, you can see that the movement between these two entirely different asset class are highly closely correlated. So one is stock and one is bond. Right? So this is quite amusing. So I think since a couple of months ago, because the Chinese economic cycle, it is still not recovering as strongly. And it, there are signs of recovery, but not very strongly. Uh, therefore, the Chinese long bond yield is actually diving. But this time around, the SOE stock price started to decouple from the long bond yield. And I think that's the reason why people still like these names, because in a very weak environment, they provide some sort of stability. 
and income. But I think overall, it's more a story than actual different class of stocks. And therefore, people can buy them for dividends, buy them for low valuation, but not because of the stories that they've been telling you. Fair enough. Thanks for your insight today, Hao. Actually, there's still a couple of topics we haven't talked about, including the LGFVs, the labor market, and the investor confidence, etc., etc. But in the interest of time, I thought we can just leave the rest to our Shanghai luncheon two weeks later. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com/legal/podcast for further important legal information.